Welcome to the Self-Culture Dish Podcast, the Cho Cell Line, from reliable workhorse to state-of-the-art protein powerhouse. I'm Brandi Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Alan Dixon, professor of biology at the Manchester Institute of Biotechnology, University of Manchester. Alan describes himself as a molecular cell biologist who thinks of cells as factories that can be used to manufacture life-changing medicines, including protein-based biopharmaceuticals, viral vectors, and modified cells. Working with industrial and academic collaborators, he has developed key advances toward the understanding of how apoptosis, quality control mechanisms, and genome localization of recombinant genes can influence the efficiency of Cho cell systems. His laboratory, were very early adopters of the application of omics approaches to provide molecular profiling of CHO cells and how such information could be used to direct cell engineering toward improved manufacturing processes. Allen's contribution to the sector was recognized by the award of the Peter Dunhill Award in 2017. In addition to his research, Allen teaches undergraduate and postgraduate levels and has held several senior administrative roles at the University of Manchester. Welcome to our podcast, Alan. Thank you for being with us today. Your group has a very long trajectory in bioprocessing research. In fact, you've been working quite closely with the subject of our interview today, the Chinese hamster ovary cell line. Today, Cho cells are the workhorse for the development and manufacturing of biopharmaceutical products. But back in 1957, when Puck managed to isolate and keep in culture the first Cho K1 cells, nobody could anticipate this success. I wanted to ask what you think is so special about Cho and why has it ended up being so successful? That's a really good question to start with, Brandy. What's special about Cho? Well, actually, they've survived 40 to 50 years of use. And they they started off initially as being isolated as um, cells that would be used to study cancer. And they divided very rapidly and they were used for a long time in that context. But at the same time, people developed mutants that enabled them to be used in selection systems to express proteins. So by by that, I mean being able to use a cell line and knock out specific genes. They were able to use those same genes in a vector cassette so that they could use that as a marker to look at the uptake of a recombinant gene. You know, I think the longevity of the Cho cell is because it was a very robust cell line that many groups worked on. They built up lots of information about how the cells grew, and they tended to be a very, what should we call them, a very uh, amenable system to generate further mutations that gave the cells different properties that people could use to their own purposes. So, so I think that's a, that's a first starting point. And then I think also because Cho cells started to be used for the production of proteins, they then became almost accepted. The products that came from them went through the FDA and other regulatory authorities and were approved. And consequently, then the ease of that approval meant that others could follow along and also get their product approved if they use Cho cells as well. So they became established in that way. I think that's successful for them in terms of their ability to be used by many different groups to make many different types of proteins. So it was a rapid growth, the large amount of information that was gathered about them, 
the selection markers it could be coupled to vectors and protein expression, and then the fact that it got regulatory approval. So I think that's a bit of a summary of that area. I hope that covers what's special about them. They're also, I mean, if you want to call them special, they are mammalian cells. They carry out the right sort of processing for the type of products that might be used as human therapies. And as such, that also fitted into the speciality and the value for companies in terms of a production wholesale line. I think it is appropriate to call them special. Not only have they been such a workhorse for the industry, but also from the original isolation of the CHO-K1 cells, many derivatives have emerged over the years, CHO-S, CHO-DG44, and then CHO-K1 variants, um, and more recently, knockouts to improve clonal selection or eliminate undesirable enzymatic activities. Although there's been a dramatic evolution in genetic manipulation and gene editing technologies over the past couple of decades, one would have expected an acceleration in the generation of new hosts. Do you think that these original variants managed to address specific industry needs at the time and perhaps that new promised improvements are far more difficult to realize than one might think? Oh, you're asking me all the good questions today. Let me just go back to the derivatives that have emerged. The derivatives emerged for two reasons. First of all, because the cell line was subject to mutations and went through various screening processes, then we ended up getting different variants emerging from continuous culture. Those cell lines then became accessible. Various groups were using them around the world. But they also gave rise to different processes. And for companies, that was valuable because one company could use a very specific Cho cell lineage, a variant, a derivative, if you'd call it that. And then another company could be using a different one. So companies were able to develop their own platform that was selective and might give effectively commercial advantage. And in a world of IP and related activity, one has processes that develop. So, for example, not only might somebody use a, a Cho DG44 but they develop a very specific medium and process to go along with it. And over the years, the use in in a company with different media being used would effectively cause the cell line to become honed in to a process. So the derivatization, this is called directed evolution. The process that you might use would develop your cell line into one that was perhaps different from the true DG44 that started off 20 years before. And its continuous use gave advantage to people. Now, these original variants, then, I would suggest that we now have many more variants. Every time somebody develops a Cho cell line and uses it to make a specific protein, they will inherently end up with a slightly different variant. And was it addressing the specific industry needs at the time? Well, it it, it was. Um, from many of the early products, we were seeing the production of fairly basic antibodies and antibodies that could be, I think we should probably say, relatively easy to make. And over the period of time, by growing the cells in different media, it then became possible to enhance and increase the production. At the same time, we're balancing the growth of the cells in a different media with perhaps the selection of a variant that was better within that media and adapted to making that product. 
I think the, the last part of your question, if I just remember back, was uh, were the new promised improvements, um, were they realised? Uh, have we achieved these? Well, in, in many ways, there's been a continuous evolution between using a true cell line, adapting it to grow in a specific media, adapting it to make a specific protein, and having an environmental platform for cell growth that has enabled people to move from at one time back in the 1990s, really pleased if we made 0.1 to 0.2 grams of antibody per litre. Now using cell lines that might have started off as being Cho DG44, the evolution of better processes need adaptation might be making 5 to 10 grams per litre in what was initially the same original variant but has adapted to the processes that have been used. So I think in, in terms of an industrial perspective, these variant cell lines have generated adaptation within the company hands that have enabled them to optimise the process. And I think we should see them as being very successful. And the, the ability to make products up to 5 to 10 grams per litre for antibodies has really revolutionised our ability to make medicines that are being used therapeutically. It might be that we want to talk about non-traditional antibodies and different products, and they are more difficult to make, perhaps not to the same yield, perhaps not to the same quality. And we're looking at the way in which Cho cells might be adapted to handle these much more difficult formats, but very exciting formats of potential medicines. I think I'll probably stop at that point on this question. And, um, you know, we can come back and talk later about those specific details if that's relevant. It was just so great that you pointed out the changes in terms of what we've seen happen just relatively recently within the last 20 to 30 years with Cho cells. And I certainly remember being at conferences where people were excited around what we would consider today very low <laughs> levels of titer uh, from Cho cell lines. And just how that has evolved from then to now is, is so impressive and just goes again to the point of, of Cho being special, uh, as, we, as we talked about. I wanted to ask you, what would be your ideal scenario? Is it better to have a one-size-fits-all or a one-outfit-for-every-occasion in the world of biotherapeutic production, particularly in the case of Cho cell lines? Wow, one-size-fits-all. Mm. It, it, it sounds a little bit like um, uh, I, 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 when, when we're going out, do we actually have different ties to wear all the time? But <laughs> the, the one suit is probably quite a good idea. You know, for for, for company and industrial level, you would like a, a platform that works very much in the same way every time. And you've got predictability. So one outfit for every occasion would be fantastic. But sometimes our occasion might be a wedding. Uh, sorry, I'm being very <laughs> going into real life now. One time it might be a wedding, the next time it might be a christening. And the outfit we'd want to wear might be similar, but it will be different. You know, for, for a wedding, you might wear a, a different sort of uh, tie than you do to a christening, whatever, whatever, whatever. So I think if we're making fairly standard antibodies where there is a, a, a format of product that is relatively similar every time we try to make a slightly different variant, so we just engineered a part of it, then it would be ideal to have a one outfit fits everything. One, one size fits all, I think you've called it. And... 
But, you know, as we're moving onwards, we aren't just making the antibody, the antibody, the antibody every time. We're, we're making formats of proteins now that are really unusual. In, in the biofarms area, people talk about uh, vanilla and exotic antibodies. So the vanilla antibody is basically the format that's more or less identical every time. The exotic ones is where the molecule might be engineered to have extra binding sites or have a very different structure. And it's likely that we're not going to find that the same CHO cell will work for all of those types of products. So one of the drives really is to understand better what it is in an exotic molecule that might make it much harder to make? And then can we match that together with a true cell variant that's been engineered to accept the production of that molecule or can be adapted with the process, with the medium, with the engineering to fit that specific product? So I don't know if there is an ideal scenario. It would be perfect if you just went into your box and you pulled out the true cell line you could use every time. Yet it's unlikely to be that. And yet the one size fits all. So many antibodies are made in a routine platform process. And you can guarantee almost certainly you'll get this product. So you definitely want your one size fits all in your box of tools. But you also probably have that toolbox for the adaptation as we're moving to new products, where you can go to those, imagine like a library of 10 different cells. You try number one, number two, number three for different products as you come along. So the ideal scenario is probably this fairly standard process you have and the library toolbox you can go to and you can take out individual ones to test out the difficult molecules, the ones that are unusual, the exotic ones as you go forward. So I'm I'm very good at not quite answering a question, I think, Brandy, but I've tried to give you what I think is the (laughs) ideal scenario, which is a mixture of both. You really do want your your one-size-fits-all, and then you want your specialised ones as you come forward to try and make the more exotic and the more difficult molecules. That makes perfect sense and really goes into to my next question. In recent years, we've witnessed with more or less success the onset of different waves of alternative methodologies to produce biotherapeutics from recombinant plants to engineered microbes to cell-free platforms. Uh, kind of going back to what you were talking about, having need sometimes for uh, different outfits so to speak. Although some of these platforms seem to cater well for specific product niches, you know, vaccines, ADCs, et cetera, they don't seem to really replace the use of mammalian culture technologies and the use of CHO cells in particular. Do you think it'll ever be possible to have the perfect vehicle for biotherapeutic protein production, be it CHO or any other mammalian system? Oh, you're asking me all the good questions today. (laughs) Um, Let me see. One of the things I should tell you about true cells is that they are not professional protein secretory cells. We're using them, and we're using them because of the history and because of some really neat selection systems that enable you to define which cells have taken up the recombinant gene that you wish to express. But, you know, if you look at the productivity in most CHO cells and you say, how much protein does one CHO cell make per day? Then actually, they're about 10% as effective as a professional protein secretory cell. So, for example, by professional uh, protein secretory cells, I might mean the plasma cell making antibodies in the human body in response to an infection. And they'll make about 200 picograms per cell per day. And most true cells make about 20 
baker grams per cell today. Because that Cho cell does something that a plasma cell doesn't. The Cho cell keeps dividing and it tends to divide. And so a lot of the energy the cell has goes towards making more of itself and not more of this, well, to what it is, is a useless secreted protein. So if we understand the, the basis of a professional secretory cell, then you could start to select for the type of cell that would be useful to use as your perfect vehicle for biotherapeutic production, or to think about how you engineer chose towards that perfect vehicle. So the perfect vehicle for protein production will make lots and lots of proteins per cell per unit time. It will also have to be able to grow well. And so ideally, you want it to grow to as high density as possible to get as much product as possible. Now, those two things are probably incompatible, probably, but we can think about switching cells. So an ideal vehicle will be a cell that will grow incredibly well, which can then be switched onto a productive phenotype to make the recombinant protein. And then a final thing to add to that perfect vehicle would be that it makes the protein of the right quality. And it, so for example, will add exactly the right carbohydrate groups, or it will modify the protein in the correct way for function. And it's very easy when we're working with antibodies, for example. The major modifications are glycosylation, but there are some much more complex proteins out there that require different mod modifications. Are Cho cells going to be the way of the future? Well, they grow well, they can be adapted, they can be modified, they have all the potential to be turned into these uh, grow well and then switch on for production platforms. And we're seeing people starting to use continuous processes for Chinese hamster ovary cell culture and growth. So that you can grow your cells up to quite high density within almost a, a fixed immobile situation and then slow down the growth and keep them, keep them actually alive and yet producing in a continuous process system. So it, it's not just necessarily the system, the Chinese hamster ovary cell that we might think of, but also the environment in which it survives, which will affect its productivity. So the vehicle is going to be the right citro cell, the right environment, and the ability to make a protein of appropriate quality. You might ask me, would another mammalian cell work? Um, absolutely. But it has to be able to have this growth property and production property. You might then ask me, could we just engineer microbes? And the answer to that is yes. If we can actually get microbes that will handle and modify proteins in the correct way to use them for therapeutics. And there are individuals trying to modify microbes, E. coli, other systems to do just that. So I think we're, we're probably 10 years away from having systems that might be used. Um, we're seeing people working on cell-free systems. We're seeing people looking at recombinant plants. But there's such an investment in the industry, in the CHO platform, and the investment in time to get one that's so much more productive than it was years ago, that the challenge for anyone wanting to use another system is whether in five years they'll get a return for the investment of time and money they put into developing up another system. So I think we're... I'm not going to say stuck with Chinese hamster ovary cells. I think we're very fortunate to have them and we'll be able to use them for the years to come with these adaptations I mentioned. As we look towards the future, 
you know, I ask myself, will we continue to want therapeutic proteins and will we be harvesting them in cultures and then injecting them into individuals? Well, we're seeing so many things happening in the cell and gene therapy area where actually we might be able to re-engineer individual cells and put them back in the individual and cure them for life. So somewhere along the way, there's going to be some of the therapies that are generated in Chinese hamster ovary cells that are going to be therapeutically delivered in individuals' own cells by engineering those cells and cell replacement. Very costly just now, will become more expensive. It depends on the disease it's going to be used for. But as the bioprocessing evolves, we're going to have to find ways of ensuring we can take cells from a patient, grow them properly in culture, re-engineer them genetically, and then put them back into the individual and hopefully produce what will be absolutely life-changing cures in those individuals. Some of that technology is already happening, but I think we're going to see more and more over the next 10 or so years. That's probably, you know, we would be replacing expressing technologies. I'm not sure. I think um, my, my point about the cell and gene therapies and how they might uh, develop up new cures as against new treatments, I think is a very powerful investment for the future. What you were talking about in terms of having other alternatives for therapeutics and treatments, I think is really important. It's all part of how we see therapeutics evolving. How do we see you know the, the shape of medicine evolving uh, over the next several decades? Um, but I'm wondering how you specifically see bioprocessing evolving in the future. Do you think at some point we'll witness, for lack of a better term, a replacement of expression technologies? Or do you think that we'll always at some level have the need to have these expression technologies present? I think expression technologies are with us and they'll stay with us. Um, I think it's like the production of insulin and uh, not in a mammalian system, but the ability to generate cheap insulin is going to be important for years and years to come. There are other situations where the ability to treat somebody therapeutically by proteins that have been expressed in cultures, CHO cells or other cells as we go forward, will, will still be critically important. The, the ability to carry out the gene therapy and, and cell replacement therapy just now is incredibly costly. And uh, as such, it requires very specialised knowledge of the bioprocessing. I mean, how do we take cells from an individual and grow them well in culture, and then engineer them and be sure we're putting back something that's going to be fully functional and will be a replacement therapy. That, that's critically important for us to go forward. There's still a very important bioprocessing aspect to that. How do we grow cells in culture and make sure they stay the same? And then we're seeing lots of the technology that was developed with Chinese hamster ovary cells to make proteins also being applied into cells such as the human embryonic kidney cells, HEC293 cells, where we can make viral vectors that can then be used to take genes back into initials as cures. So the, the, the viral vector technology in HEC cells is really all about the bioprocessing. What do we know about how well CHO cells grow? How do we know how well CHO cells express protein of the right quality? Read exactly the same for HEC cells. 
How do we know they're growing well in culture? How do we optimize that? How do we ensure they make lots of the viral vector complex, AAV, lentiviruses, complex uh, nucleic acid protein uh, structures? How do we ensure that the production of those are appropriate? And so I see that all the things that we've developed through knowledge of CHO cells, the variants, their quality, their production, is going to be applicable to the new world where we're going to see gene therapies coming into play as well. So uh, what large challenges? I mean, really, I think our challenges are to get a workforce as well who can apply the knowledge from the use of Chinese hamsters ovary cells into these new developing therapeutic areas where we're growing, for example, hex cells or we're growing patients' own cells in culture and bioprocesses. And if we apply the right knowledge and the learnings that have come from the, the CHO cell world, then I think we're going to accelerate the move to a whole new set of therapeutics that will be used to treat things that potentially just now we cannot treat with the biopharmaceuticals produced in shows. Generally speaking, where do you see the largest challenge still to be addressed today in bioproduction of biotherapeutics as a whole, both protein and non-protein? Where do you think that we need to be? People will tell you different things. I mean, the cost is a critically important issue. And these are big processes. It can take, as we've seen, 10 years to develop up a new therapeutic. So how do we enable the price of these wonderful medicines to be brought down to a level where there could be universal use. We've seen recently with the, the COVID-19 situation how quickly clinical trials can be done. But the amount of effort that's going to pull that together might be something we can do in a pandemic situation. I don't know how easy it is going to be to accelerate the processes and decrease the cost of the production of what, let's just call them, more standard biological medicines. So I think cost is critically important. And we live in a world where it isn't just the rich Western world who should have access to medicines. We've got to make sure that we're looking after the whole world and making medicines at a price that's affordable across the entire seven to eight billion individuals within the world. That is a very important point. Uh, cost and accessibility is very important. And as you mentioned, I think it is a, a, an important goal to reach the developing world and not just uh, the developed world with these medicines as well. That's really all the questions that I have today. I want to thank you so much. This has been such an interesting conversation and I really appreciate your perspective on CHO and just the history of CHO cells and uh, where we're at today and where we could see ourselves going in the future, not just with CHOs, but with mammalian cells and um, expression technologies in general. Uh, I wanted to close just by asking if there's anything else that you'd like to add for the listeners today in general um, before we say goodbye. Just one general comment, Brandy, and that's about the, the absolute fascination of biology and how, how important is it we all understand a little bit about the potential of these biological medicines. And I, I, I'm always very aware how important it is to be able to talk to every individual, make them understand what we're doing. We've seen with the COVID-19 situation here in the UK, for example, newspapers carrying articles about the use of mRNA 
to, to generate vaccines in, in individuals. And so I've had conversations with people who I would never have talked science to before, but, you know, it's our duty to explain science, show people what's possible, and to help educate uh, us all to understanding what we can do and how we can treat diseases that otherwise are untreatable. So if anything, as a general point, um, isn't biology fascinating? And it tells us so much of what's possible. And um, the, the things that have been treated today, uh, 20, 30 years ago, would have been absolute killers. So it's a pleasure to be working in this area. And it's, it's wonderful to be able to pass on this information where I can do. That's such a wonderful point. We do all have a responsibility to educate and to share information that we know about biology and how medicines work. And I have a friend who's a virologist who has said that people have never been so interested <laughs> in what yeah. he does. Uh, answering questions uh, for people uh, is just so important right now. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I, I really think that this is an important topic and something that um, will continue to be discussed for many, many years to come. Oh, it's a pleasure, Brandy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To listen to other podcasts related to the discovery, development, and manufacture of biologics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com. And for downstream process topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com.